Today is Sanctity of Human Life Sunday, and it was over 30 years ago that uh, President Ronald Reagan declared this Sunday Sanctity of Human Life. And I just want to call that to your attention, uh, because we believe in life. Uh, as people who believe the Bible, who listen to the, to, who, who listen to the Holy Spirit, uh, we believe in, in, in physical life, we believe in spiritual life, we b- believe in new life. That's why teams are going to Costa Rica, to bring spiritual life to, uh, to those that are, are lost. And so I just want to take a minute and pray, open this service or open this, this message time with prayer and, and pray for our country, pray for um, uh, a change in how we view life as a nation. So Lord Jesus, we just thank you that uh, there are those that do believe in life, and we grieve the loss of, of thousands of babies who have been murdered uh, in the name of choice. Uh, they will never have the choice to, uh, to live. And uh, I just pray that uh, as we uh, study your word, as we look at scripture, as we uh, engage truth, that we would stand for truth, stand for light. And Lord, as we look at this brand new baby church that believed in life, they believed in spiritual life, uh, Father, I pray that you would breathe into us new life by your Holy Spirit. Uh, Lord, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we are three weeks into our study on the book of Acts, a new covenant community. The Holy Spirit has come in power. Uh, last week in chapter 2, we, we saw how he unleashed, the Holy Spirit unleashed his amazing power on this church, uh, this brand new baby group of believers in Jerusalem. And then the Holy Spirit came in power on Peter and he preached this amazing sermon. And 3,000 people responded and said, what do we do, Peter? What do we do? And he said, repent. And they did. And it was, it was powerful. And so today we're going to finish up chapter 2. Uh, open your Bibles to chapter 2, verses 42, 42 to 47 is our text. If you need a Bible, the ushers have some Bibles here coming down the aisle. Uh, just raise your hand and they will hand you a Bible to use or to take home. Uh, as the case may be, feel free to keep that Bible. We believe in God's Word. Um, and last week, so last week we saw Peter preach this a powerful sermon. And then whenever, whenever Peter preached this sermon, the people responded, so what do we do? And so he, they, he said, repent, believe, they did, they got saved, and uh, we suddenly have a megachurch of brand new baby Christians. And I think you have to ask the question, so now what? What do you do with 3,000 brand new believers? Oh, to have that problem. Those are the good kind of problems that we'd love to have. What do you do? Do you know that so now what feeling? Like when you brought your first baby home from the hospital and you held this thing and you go, so now what do we do? I'll never forget um, many, many years ago, young, young, brand new pastor. And uh, I went through the process of candidating to being called by this church we packed up everything we owned. We moved thousands of miles. We settled into a new place. And I remember walking into my office on the first day on the job, and I sat down at my desk, and I go, this is really cool. <clears throat> so what do I do now? I'll never forget that feeling. What, what do I do now? What does a brand new megachurch do? What is needed to take this group of, of baby believers and bring them to maturity? 
Look at, look at verse 42 of chapter 2, and here's the, the quick answer. And they devoted themselves to, number one, the apostles' teaching. Number two, the fellowship. Number three, the breaking of bread. And number four, the prayers. That's what you do now. You focus on these four things. That's what this baby church did, and that's what uh, old churches do, and that's what every church needs to be doing, is focusing on this. This word devoted, they devoted themselves to, it's an intensive form in the present tense, and what it means is that these new believers had four new priorities in life. These are the things that they were continually dedicating time and energy to now. They devoted themselves to these four things. They committed themselves to, they, they rearranged their lives to, to commit to these four things. This was a change. It's not what they did before. This wasn't what they had been doing. This was a rearrangement of their life. They were now devoting themselves, the, the fact that they were devoting themselves to these four priorities was an outflowing and outworking of the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. They didn't need to be told. Peter didn't say, okay, guys, here's what you do. Okay, first of all, apostles' teaching. And then second, no, this was just a, a, a spontaneous reaction as the Holy Spirit was poured out in them. They wanted to study the apostles' teaching. They wanted to be together in fellowship. They wanted to break bread and, and celebrate the Lord's Supper. They wanted to pray and to worship this God who rescued them. It's just what they did. Now, I want you to notice something here. When the Holy Spirit came in power, <clears throat> he completely upended the schedules and priorities of these people. He completely changed. They met every day in homes. Now, you've got to ask yourself some questions here. Didn't they have jobs to go to? Were they taking vacation time? Weren't the kids supposed to be in school? Wasn't there soccer practice that we had to get to on time? Weren't there games on Saturday morning that we don't, can't miss? What about going to the mall? What about the Super Bowl party that's coming up? When the Holy Spirit invades our lives, he reorganizes our priorities. He changes what's important. Things that used to be important no longer are important. And things that we didn't even know existed before suddenly become the highest priorities in life. Wherever Jesus goes, he rearranges our lives. Are we open to that? Do we resist that? Do we say, okay, Jesus, you can rearrange this much, but I'm going to hang on to this part. I don't think that's what this early church did. They said, take it all. I want, you, I want to take a look at, at, the, at how the Holy Spirit rearranged these believers' lives. I want, I want to look at these four priorities. And as we look at them, we've got to ask ourselves if these are four of our highest priorities. And if they aren't, why aren't they? Or we could ask ourselves, are we doing these four things in our own flesh? Are we doing them mechanically, but not with an infusion of the Spirit where, there is, where it's life-giving? Let's take a look at the first one, these four priorities. Number one, sound biblical doctrinal teaching. All those words are intentional. The first thing that they focused on was sound biblical doctrinal teaching. Verse 42, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. And when we read apostles' teaching, think the word of God. Now, this baby church had the actual apostles to teach them. 
Isn't that cool? They had John, they had Peter, they had James, they had Paul, who could actually teach them. Now, of course, those guys are long dead, but they left behind some writings. We call it the New Testament. And so we can devote ourselves to the apostles' teaching. The vast majority of the New Testament was written by the apostles. And we can study it. We immerse ourselves in this book. This, is, this should be a passion. This should be a priority. This should be what we devote a chunk of our time to doing. Everything we know about God, everything we know about salvation, everything we know about Jesus, everything we know about life in Christ, everything we know about this Christian life and how to live it and our values like life and human life comes from the scriptures. We don't, we don't preach good books. We preach the book. We study the book. And so we devote ourselves to this book. To have a relationship with Jesus, you've got to study this book. We don't worship this book. We don't, we don't worship the book. We worship the God who wrote the book. So how does Cornerstone do this? And each of these four points, I want to take a look at how we as a local church uh, uh, express these and do these things. First of all, teaching from the pulpit up front on Sunday morning. It's always the Bible. Uh, we, we've never preached on the purpose-driven life. Um, we've never preached on how to make friends and influence enemies, or however that book goes. <clears throat> um, we preach the Bible. We've set up classes, grow classes, we call them. Uh, some of those classes are how to enjoy your Bible and how to study your Bible. Twelve years ago, this church started a Bible college right next door so that we could offer more intensive and more deliberate and more scholarly study of God's Word. The only degree that Eternity Bible College offers is a degree in biblical studies. It's all about studying the Bible. And EBC has set up a lot of classes. There's online classes. There's all kinds of things that we can partake of and learn more about the Bible without going to college and getting college credit. Uh, they started something called the Silo Project, where they're online, they call it Bible teaching for normal people. And since we're all normal, that's us. And there's brochures back there about those classes. Um, we have men's and women's Bible studies that meet all through the week, all over Simi Valley. We study the Bible. And there's a lot of information on all that back there at the information table. The second priority to which they were devoted I'm calling selfless togetherness. Selfless togetherness. Verse 42, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship. This word fellowship is the Greek word uh, koinonia. And it means united or together or sharing or caring or like-minded. When the Holy Spirit came in power, these new believers just wanted to hang out together. They just wanted to be together. Verse 44 says, and all who believed were together. Back in chapter 2 and verse 1, it says, when the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. There was just this desire to be together, to be in company with one another. And they didn't just hang out shooting the breeze about football or the weather or whatever. They were selling their stuff to raise money to take care of the needy among them. 
They were sacrificing and giving in amazing ways. This is, this is what we call selfless togetherness. Look at verse 44. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. Now this could get weird, and I don't want it to, but uh, Luke is not teaching socialism. He's not teaching that we should all sell everything and pool our stuff and live in communes. Uh, There are those who have taken these verses to mean that, and they have done that, and it didn't work. Um, There was no force. There was no coercion. There was no uh, demanding that everybody sell everything and give it to the the grand poobah up front. It would seem here that the idea was that they were to sell off excess property. Uh, They were to sell off the cabin up in Big Bear. Uh, maybe sell off the RV, the, the condo in Vail. Uh, th- these were the things they were selling and then bringing the money and, and giving them to the apostles so the apostles could distribute them to the poor and needy among them. They understood that what they owned was not really theirs, that God had blessed them, that God had given them stuff, God had provided for them. They realized that people are more important than stuff, and it's, it's more about generosity. It's more about meeting the needs of others. Uh, so so don't, don't, don't see this as teaching this, this communalism or something. And then in verse 46, we see this phrase, breaking bread in their homes. Uh, really, you could read that house by house. Breaking bread house by house. It means they went around to different houses and they ate together. So, you know, where do 3,000 people have church? In people's houses. They were meeting in people's homes all over the city of Jerusalem. Uh, and, and we see this later in Acts chapter 12. When, when Peter, uh, Peter was in prison, he, he was broken out by the angels, and he went to the house of Mary where many were gathered together and were praying. See, Mary hadn't sold her house uh, she still had a house. People still had homes. It's, it, it's, it wasn't this sell everything you have. And We need these relationships where we really know each other. You can't get to know people intimately on Sunday morning. You can make acquaintances. You know, everybody sits in the same section pretty well. I've preached up here often enough to know that, you know, um, the Andersons community group sits right here. <clears throat> and uh, if you come early and sit there, you'll be asked to move. Um, and, and, you know, I, I can, you know, the Lovejoys are always over there somewhere in this general section. Um, and so you kind of get to know the people around you, but, but it's, it's, it's superficial. We need, we need to meet together in smaller groups and homes where we can get to know each other, where we can share needs, where we can eat together, where we can pray together, where we can hurt together, we can cry together. That's an essential part of the spiritual life. And these, these, these new believers got it. 
They understood that, and they just did it naturally. Nobody, nobody set up a program of community groups and assigned them to different neighborhoods. They just met together because the Holy Spirit came on them, and they wanted to be together. So how do we do this at Cornerstone? Well, there's no one right way to be together in a smaller setting. Uh, there's all kinds of informal gatherings and formal gatherings and structures and lack of structures. But we do have a structure we call community groups. And typically that's a group of people that meet in a home, uh, maybe 15 to 25 people depending on the group. We have about 20 of these kinds of groups here in our church. Let me talk about our community groups for a minute. Our desire would be that every single person that calls Cornerstone their home church, that this is where you worship, this is your place, that you have a smaller gathering of people that you meet with on a regular basis, where you can build relationships, where you can be held accountable, where you can share your needs, where you can meet other people's needs within that group. Why? Why do we want that? These groups are a first line of defense for all kinds of needs. Uh, as, as I work with community groups, I see community group leaders and community groups as the first line of defense for shepherding and for caring. There's only so many pastors at the church and, and we can't monitor every single person and hear about every single need and know every single person that's going into the hospital. We can't know everybody. There's just too many. And so when you're in a group, you can be known. That's not always something you want to do. We don't always want to be known. We don't want to be held accountable. We don't want to be confronted. But it's a place where relationships can be built. Because if your desire is to walk with Christ, if your desire is to passionately follow Jesus, you need other people to help you do that. The Christian life was never meant to be lived in isolation. It's a place to share your burdens. Galatians 6 says that we're to carry one another's burdens. I was in a community group meeting this week. <clears throat> I'm going, we're going around visiting different groups. And um, they were studying Galatians 6. Bearing one another's burdens. Carrying one another's burdens. And people went around, around the room and they shared how their burdens had been carried by others uh, at different times in the past. And then one couple said, well, we have, a, we have something that we haven't told anybody yet, and we need to share this. And they shared a burden, something brand new in their lives. And there were tears. And everything stopped, and we prayed for that couple, and prayed for that need. And I have no doubt they left feeling encouraged. Knowing that there's a group of people, 12 or 15 people, that now know about this situation, and could walk with them and help them. <clears throat> Something that probably the rest of the church will never know. But this group does. God designed the church to, 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 to be a help in carrying those burdens. Uh, whether you know it or not, I was hired last fall by Cornerstone to help facilitate community groups. Uh, my title, I guess, is Pastor of Community Groups or something like that. I don't have any business cards, so I really don't know what my title is, but uh, I'll, I'll work with that. <clears throat> so what have I learned? I've learned that we need more groups. 
We have about 20 groups. And if those groups average 20 people, that's 400 people. This church is a whole lot bigger than 400. That means there's a whole bunch of us that aren't in, at least as far as I know, and maybe you are connected in some kind of a group someplace else. We need more groups. A lot of our groups are too big. They're little churches. And and I mean that literally. There are churches out there who are smaller, that are smaller than some of our community groups. But to have more groups, what do we need? More leaders. We need more leaders. More people willing to step out by faith and say, I'm terrified, but I'll do it. I'll shepherd. It's not easy. It's not like the, you know, the army poster. Um, we need a few good men and women. Uh, it's, it's, it takes time. It takes energy. Your priorities and your schedule will get rearranged. If you're leading a group, you probably are going to say no to some things that you used to do to say yes to these things. You will absolutely need the outpouring of the Holy Spirit on you to shepherd a flock of people. But there's got to be some sitting here this morning. This isn't a guilt trip. I'm just trying to facilitate the Holy Spirit a little bit. Oh man, that sounds terrible. Um, Um... The writer of Hebrews in chapter 5 makes a statement. For though though by this time you ought to be teachers, then he goes on and says how we're still drinking the milk of the Word. I think what he's saying is that there's, there's some people that have not stepped up, that the Holy Spirit has called and prompted and encouraged, and you said, nah, nah, I can't do that. Let me me encourage you to just listen to the voice of the Spirit. So I want to challenge each of us to two things this morning. First of all, join a group if you're not. Make it a priority. And secondly, lead a group. Be willing to step out. We have several uh, veteran community group leaders who have already agreed to walk with new leaders. You're not going to be thrown out there on your own and say, okay, go lead a group, I don't care, just go. No, that's not what we want. You won't be alone. EBC is even offering an evening class this next semester on communicating the Bible. There's flyers back there at the table about that, that you can audit that class and learn how to communicate God's Word, which we can all do. So we need to be engaged in selfless togetherness. That's the second priority. The third priority to which these new believers were devoted was partaking of the Lord's Supper. Verse 42, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship to the breaking of bread. Now this is most likely referring to the Lord's Supper, but it was also a meal because at that time the Lord's Supper was simply the the bread and cup came out of a meal. They would get together and they would eat. And after they had eaten, they would would take uh, bread and and juice or wine and, and, and they would have communion or have the Lord's Supper. It's one of the reasons that we've moved to that sort of a structure on Sunday nights here at Cornerstone. 
The new covenant was inaugurated in the context of a meal. The old covenant was inaugurated in the context of a meal. Moses and elders of Israel went up on the mountaintop and they sat down and had a meal, uh, presumably with God there. And in the context of that meal, the, the old covenant, the, the Sinaitic covenant, where Israel would become a nation, was, was inaugurated. Partaking of the Lord's Supper is a continual reminder that, that Jesus' death and resurrection are the center of everything. 1 Corinthians 11, Paul says, uh, this cup, when, he, when, he's, when he's explaining about communion, when he, the Lord's Supper, he says, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. The new covenant in my blood. When the disciples heard that, they go, I, what, what is that? This was something new. So every time we, we, we take the Lord's Supper, we remind ourselves of the new covenant. And I love that we're doing it now in the context of a, of a whole meal because face it, no church gathering is complete without food. That's just who we are. And I love, I love I've, been, I've been part of a lot of different denominations or been around them and they all seem to claim this. Like, oh, good Baptists always eat a lot. Good Presbyterians always eat a lot. Good, you know, I mean, it's like we all eat a lot. Good Christians eat a lot. Good people eat a lot. That's... that's that's okay, because when we eat together, it's a new level of intimacy. We can talk, but when we have a meal together, it takes us to the next level, right? Because now people see that you smack your lips when you eat. <laughs> and you don't close your mouth when you're chewing. And you become vulnerable. And people go, oh, I don't want to around this I was going to tell you a story but I won't <clears throat> but there is a, a mystical reality to the Lord's Supper that I think we miss way too often a mystical mystery now, I'm going to get weird here so don't worry but what I'm saying is that there's something abstract, something spiritual, something that the Holy Spirit does that we can't quantify, something that when we take those elements of communion, and I don't believe they turn into the literal body of Christ or the literal blood of Christ. I don't believe that. I know some do. But there is something um, spiritual about the act of taking communion. Because the Lord's Supper, the bread and the cup, pictures a mystical reality <clears throat> seen especially like in Galatians 2.20 where it says, I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The idea there is that I'm dead. And the only reason I live is because Christ is in me. So when I, when I take this symbol of Christ's body and this symbol of Christ's blood and I eat it and I drink it, it goes into me. And I think it represents that Jesus is the life force that allows me to function. It allows me to live and breathe. It allows me to share Christ in new settings. It allows me to lead a community group. It allows me to work in children's ministry. It, it, it gives me the power to realize that Jesus is in me. In eating and drinking those elements, it's not like there's power in the grape juice. 
But, but there's, a, there's a mystical thing going on there that I think we miss. Especially in our church tradition. When I was a kid growing up, communion to me meant that the morning service was going to last long. Anybody relate to that? We had our normal everything as planned church service, and then we did communion. It's like, oh, seriously, I'm starving. This is not going to satisfy that starving. And my dad was the pastor, so... I don't think I ever told him that. How does Cornerstone do this? We're trying to be more intentional in our Lord's Supper practice. We take a whole Sunday evening, several times a year, and we get together. This room is rearranged, and we have a potluck meal, and we all eat together. You know, there's that level of intimacy where you're watching how other people eat. And, and we, we share, and we sing songs, and whatever. And then we take the bread and the cup together as a, as a big body. And I love that. I love that. And now the fourth priority to which they were devoted. I call it prayer and worship. Prayer and worship. Verse 42, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and the prayers. Interesting way of phrasing it. This word, the prayers, probably refers to a larger worship experience than just what we think of as praying. It probably has to do with communing with God at different levels. Excuse me, a conversation, a dialogue, uh, back and forth with God. When we, I hope when we sing on Sunday morning and worship that we're talking to God, we're singing those words to him, and that's prayer, and it's, it's this whole communion and fellowship with God. Prayer is a statement of dependence. It's saying, I need you. I can't do this without you. I'm helpless. I'm weak. I'm dead, according to Galatians 2. And I need your life force in me in order to function. And when I pray, I'm declaring that because we don't always live that way. We often live like I'm doing just fine, thank you. This baby church spent a lot of time in prayer. And we need to do the same. We desperately need the Holy Spirit to empower us, to enable us, to give us wisdom. And as we move into 2016, the elders of this church have designated uh, the week after next as a, as a week of prayer. And we will be doing an evening of prayer on Wednesday, January 27th, 6.30. Put it on your calendar and join us. Wednesday, January 27th, an evening of prayer together as a body. And then the next Sunday, January 31st, in the evening, I think 5 o'clock, we'll be doing the Lord's Supper together as a body. There's information in your bulletin on these things. There's information on these screens. Join us both of those times to be part of the body, to participate in what's going on here. So this is how this brand new church full of baby Christians responded. When the Holy Spirit was poured out and came in power, they studied the Bible. They spent much time in selfless togetherness. They took the Lord's Supper together and they prayed and worshiped together. Now understand these four go together. You can't pull them apart. You can't say, well, I'll do these three, but not this one, or I'll do these two, but not these two. You can't do that. It's, it's, just, it's just an outworking of the Holy Spirit as he fills us and empowers us and excites us and enthuses us. This is what we're going to do. This is what it looks like. And what's the result? 
What happens when we do that? Look at verse 43. And awe came upon every soul. And many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. This word awe is really the word fear. It's the Greek word phobos. We get phobia from this. Awe, fear came over everyone. When they saw these 3,000 new believers doing this, there was this stepping back saying, what is going on? And when the apostles were doing these signs and wonders and miracles, there was, there was some fear. I believe when the church functions like it should, it'll create a sense of awe and fear among those inside inside the church and those looking on from the outside. There was another result, verse 47. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. The Lord, okay, a few verses earlier, 3,000 people responded and got saved. And now at the end of these few verses, in verse 47, the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. That tells me every day there were people getting saved, getting baptized, and, and joining the church, whatever that meant. When we are experiencing the power of the Holy Spirit, we will expand, we will grow. People will find us attractive. They will be scared. There will be a little awe. There will be a little fear. And they'll want to be a part of it. There will be new life in Christ. Our community groups will grow. People will step up to serve. We'll be having baptisms every week, and it'll be awesome. So why doesn't that happen? Why isn't that happening? Well, we can do those four things in our own flesh. We can study the Bible mechanically. We can get together in a community group and meet every week or every other week and not really commune or not really share together. We can come to the Lord's Supper and find it a little bit boring, a little bit tedious, but okay, I'll come. We could pray in a mechanical way. And there's no awe, there's no growth, there's no new salvation, there's no fear. What's wrong? Let me tell you a story. This happened to me many years ago. I was a brand new pastor. That same church where I sat at my desk and said, what do I do now? I apparently didn't get it right because a year or two into it, one of the elders came in my office one day. He says, can I talk to you? I said, sure, yeah. And he started telling me some of the things that I was doing right, which a young guy loves to hear. You know, sermons are, are good. And he says, but there's one thing missing. I said, oh, what's that? Unction. Unction. I said, okay. I thanked him. I listened. He left. I got my dictionary out. <laughs> what in the world is unction? <clears throat> it's a good old King James word. First John 2, if you have an original King James, First John 2, 27, I think, has the word unction in it. We translate it anointing now. Unction means the the anointing of the Holy Spirit, the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, the empowering of the Holy Spirit. And I was sure um, 
The man's name was Clarence. I'm sure Clarence made me a little sign that said unction. But I can't for the life of me think where it is or if he did or... That was a long time ago. But man, I've never forgot that. If we do not have the unction of the Holy Spirit, we can go through the motions all day long. And it'll be empty. It'll be dead. There'll be no life. There'll be no awe. What, what these new believers did in Acts chapter 2 is not so much these four things as it is they allowed the unction of the Holy Spirit to infuse them and then just did what the Holy Spirit prompted them to do. So how do we get unction? I wish there were three easy steps. Even seven or eight. But let me just offer some comments. We've got to realize that we are utterly dependent upon God for everything. We can't love one another without the Holy Spirit. I can't love my wife without the Holy Spirit. I can't live my life without the Holy Spirit. I can't preach a sermon without the Holy Spirit. Oh, we can do all those things without the Holy Spirit, but they will fall flat. And we can't just keep doing the things that we know we're good at. Because when we do the things we know we're good at, we do them in our own strength. We've got to push ourselves out a little bit and, and attempt great things for God, attempt new things for God, knowing that if the Holy Spirit doesn't empower us, we'll fall flat on our face. Now, is that terrifying? Yeah. But man, it's exciting to see the Holy Spirit give us the ability Give us the power. Infuse us with unction to do those things. We need to die to ourselves. We need to be willing to rearrange our schedules. We need to be willing to, to change our priorities. We need to be nauseated by the thought of playing church. We need to be sick of being half hearted. We need to be sick of partial measures. The thought of being lukewarm needs to do the same thing to us that it does to Jesus. And that is it makes him vomit. If we can't be hot, then let's be cold. If we can't go all out for Jesus, let's just deny the faith and go somewhere else. We need a hunger and thirst for God alone. We just sang in Christ alone. We've got a hunger and thirst for Christ alone. And if you don't have that hunger and don't have that thirst, then start begging for it. God, give me the hunger. I want to be hungry, and I know I'm not. I want to be thirsty, and I know I'm not. So give it to me. I challenge each of us this morning to take a hard look inside and ask, if I am not experiencing unction, and I'll bet most of you didn't know unction existed before this morning. In all seriousness, Google the word when you get home. U-N-C-T-I-O-N. It's a great study. If I'm not experiencing the unction of the Holy Spirit, then why not? What's wrong? What is in my life that is not allowing me to experience that kind of power? And if my heart is right, 
and that there is that unction that's being poured out of me, then I will do these four things passionately, not out of coercion, but by the power of the Holy Spirit. Oh, Lord Jesus, I pray that you would challenge us this morning. I pray that you'd convict us of sin, convict us of those places, those areas in our life where we're not experiencing your power. And Lord, let us, let us make changes. Let us, if, if nothing else, let, it start, let, us, let us cry out. Lord, we want that, and I have no clue how to get it. I don't even know what's wrong, but I want that. And I believe if we day after day keep asking for it, you will hear those prayers. And you will pour out your Spirit. And we will see the unction of the Holy Spirit on this church, on this people, for your glory in Jesus' name. Amen.